going to begin with some scripture this morning. This is uh, John 20, first 18 verses. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and sisters and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are like eggs. I pray that this word will be in our hearts and will break open anything in us that needs to be broken open so that new life can emerge. We pray this in the power of your spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to try PowerPoint this morning, and I'm just forewarning you, not my thing. <laughs> so we're going to give it a go. All right. Um, the thing, one thing that always astonishes me every year while I'm working on the sermon for Easter, and it was truer this year than any other year, is, is that everything kind of stays the same. So I, I have a study over here where I do most of my sermon prep. It's this space. And there's three windows there. And it looks across the street. And for the last six months, I've had a front row view to uh, some people remodeling the house across the street. And they're doing a great job. Talk to the guy, he's a great guy. And I've just, I've just been able to watch them uh, throughout the month. I watched them when it was Advent, 
Uh, and then it was Christmas and the Savior was born. And you know what they were doing? They were remodeling the house. And then it was Epiphany and this great celebration and, and, and uh, the transfiguration of Jesus and Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent. And throughout all of it, you know, they were remodeling the house. And then it was Good Friday and I was trying to wrap this thing up, put a pin in it, you know, and, uh, and I just, I looked up from, from imagining the resurrection of Jesus Christ and I looked across the street and guess what they were doing? That's right, they were remodeling the house. And then here we are, they've taken a break, and then tomorrow they'll be back remodeling the house. Um, it's the celebration of Jesus Christ, and, but we're all sort of in this same situation. You know, we, we, had a work, we had work to do during the week, and then we came here. It's Easter Sunday, this day that uh, is, is sort of like the center of the universe, the greatest thing that's ever happened in history. And then tomorrow we're all going to wake up in the morning and go and do what we always do. What difference does it make to have the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives? One of the things I think about a lot this time of year, too, related to this is, is a painting. A painting by a guy named Bruegel the Elder. I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly. Um, and I'm not even sure he painted it. But if we can get it up, um, this, this is the part that I'm not guaranteeing. Oh, look, it worked. Okay. This is called Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. Okay, it's a beautiful landscape. You got a plowman here in the bright red shirt. You're gonna look at him first probably, and he's doing a wonderful job plowing. There's a dude kind of over his right shoulder, a shepherd who's just leaning on his staff. He's doing his thing. Gorgeous picture, ships at sea, there's a town, there's even a, a horse just plodding along. I mean, this is, this is like our lives. It's a great picture of what life is like. Uh, except for the title. The title throws us off because it says Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. What Fall of Icarus? Does anybody see it? Yeah, Jeff sees it. Okay, let's zoom in. Get the next slide. There he is. Okay, see him? Okay, can you go back to the other one? Okay, look to the right, underneath the ship, there's poor Icarus, legs flailing in the sea, and everybody else is doing their thing. Landscape with the fall of Icarus. Go back to his legs. I just want you to see his legs one more time. Look at those legs. All right, thanks. We're good. All right. So, point made. Uh, W.H. Auden writes a poem about this, and he, he said, the very first line, he says, about suffering they were never wrong, the old masters. He thinks this is a painting about suffering. How well they understood how it takes place while someone else is eating, or opening a window, or just walking dully along. They never forget, they never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course anyhow in a corner, some untidy spot where the dogs go on with their doggy life, and the torturer's horse scratches its innocent behind on a tree. And so then he talks about this poem in particular. He says, in Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, 
But for him, it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had on to as it had to on the white legs disappearing into the green water and the expensive delicate ship that must have seen something amazing a boy falling out of the sky that had somewhere to go to and sailed calmly on This, this idea of the important failure grabs me this morning. We might be thinking about an important failure, one that seems unimportant to others. Maybe this morning we're thinking about somebody in particular. One of the people we're obviously thinking about is a man who was innocent, who was arrested, trumped up charges, he was assaulted, and he was executed by the state. We're thinking about him this morning, but we may be thinking of others. We may be thinking of other tragedies. We may be thinking of other failures. We may be thinking of other things that are perhaps important to us, but not important to other people. This morning, I want to reflect on that, and I want to think about it in context of Mary. This, 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 surprising, this surprising story of Mary. Because when Mary comes along to the tomb, she seems to be the only one. She seems to be the only person there who cares that Jesus has just died. And so she shows up and, and she looks around and she's there to grieve the body. I read some commentators who say, who say it doesn't really make sense that Mary's there. Of course it makes sense. She's sad that her friend died. And so she's there to grieve him. And so she shows up to grieve him, and she finds that the tomb is gone, and she assumes that his body's been stolen, and she's just heartbroken. It's grief upon grief for Mary. And so the first thing she does is she calls her friends, and she says, oh no, oh no, they've taken his body. And her friends come, and it's kind of a long story about what her friends do, but at the end of it, they go back home. At the end of it, they don't really do anything except for look in, see that he's gone, and then just go, it literally says, go back to their houses. And then Mary is once again left alone in her grief. To them, it wasn't an important enough failure to stick around and figure out what happened to his body. So then she goes and she looks in and she sees two angels, and surely angels are going to like commiserate with her and, her and her grief. And so she asks them, and they just look at her like, like in astonishment, like, why, why are you grieving? Uh, what is this grieving you say? What, how, how you grieve? I, we don't understand. Like, they, don't, they don't comprehend her grief. It's almost like they're too angelic to understand why she is so sad. And so once again, she's left completely alone in her lamentation and in her grief, the only one who thinks that this is an important failure. Finally, we have the situation of someone coming to meet her. Someone coming to acknowledge her grief in this important failure. 
And it is, we should just pause here to, to think how astonishing it is that for all the people and places to go, when Jesus is resurrected, that he goes to here, to this place, to this person. He could have, he could have risen to Pilate. And that would have been pretty brilliant because, because Pilate was on the fence. Pilate was sort of messed up about this whole thing. His wife had a dream. He didn't really know what to do. He, he, was, he was really like caught or torn, uh, even though he was sort of a coward in this whole thing. Um, but he could have risen to Pilate. They could have teamed up and they could have taken on Rome together. It would have been pretty amazing. He could have done that. And he, and he, he could have changed the world that way. He could have risen first to his disciples, the twelve. And it could have been a very strategic move to raise to them first. He could have right away risen to them and said, let's go, we've got a movement to build, we've got a church to build, we've got cathedrals to build, we've got um, you know, super PACs. I mean, we've got to get going on this. It's going to take a long time to get these things going. Let's start now. And so he could have started with the disciples. And he did it. He goes to the most unimportant person, frankly, in this whole situation. This grieving, confused friend of his named Mary Magdalene, who's just wandering around the tombs looking for somebody who's not there. Jesus seems completely uninterested in letting anyone know how important his failure was, and he seems totally interested in connecting with her as a failure in the world. This is the first thing I think we can say about his resurrection. Mary comes, and it says it's still dark when she comes. Jesus first rises to people who are in the dark. He comes to those who are confused. He comes to those who don't fully understand. He comes to those who are perhaps grieving. Mary wept at the tomb of her brother. A different Mary wept at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. This Mary weeps alone at a tomb and Jesus appears first to her. It may be that this morning you're holding some kind of a sorrow in your heart. Or it may be that you, you saw that photo of Lazarus in the water and you're like, ah, I feel that way. That, that seems like how my legs are. Like that, I feel upside down. I feel like I'm drowning, something like that. <laughs> It may be that you look around at everybody else and everybody else seems completely content to plow, to shepherd, to sail their ships or whatever it is. And your failure, whatever you're experiencing, seems completely unimportant. And you wonder what difference it makes. But then you're met by somebody and then it all comes tumbling out, like shaking up a can of soda and opening it up. Before he even says her name, she mistakes him for the gardener. That is not an accident. He is resurrected to humans, yes, but not to humans alone. To the whole groaning creation, Christ is resurrected. Here at last is a human, a human in the perfect image of God. I like to think that the first thing Jesus heard when he rose from the dead is sometimes what I hear this time of year, some hysterical robin outside my window just going nuts. Does this happen to you? Like, like they can't, it's not a sweet sound, it's not a beautiful song, it's and, and I, I love the idea that that was like the first thing in the resurrection 
that Jesus heard. Is that what you hear? This morning there was a woodpecker on our house. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> it could have, of that. could have been a woodpecker, could have been a robin. Maybe it was those stinking blue jays just squawking. Whatever it was, I like to think that that was the first thing he heard. The creation's corruption, the creation's desecration is too often seen as an unimportant failure. A tolerable failure. Well, we need these resources. But the new Adam is restoring all things in the garden, including our relationship with all created things. Before Jesus is recognized by a single human being, he is already healing the land. Mary's own healing will come in a kind of unusual way. First, she's going to have to recognize him. And that only comes not by sight, not by seeing him, she's looking right at him, but by hearing and recognizing his voice, or actually her name in his mouth. The voice of the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd who says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Sometimes it's hard to locate Jesus because when we look for Jesus, we are looking for what we're looking for. Does that make sense? Um, we, we, we want to find the Jesus that we want to find. It's still not clear, is it? Uh, let me try again. We have in our minds what Jesus is supposed to be like, and so that's who we look for. I remember uh, my beloved dear old neighbor, a, a beloved woman, I remember she gave me a picture of, of Jesus, and it was very precious to her. Uh, it was Jesus, very white and very glowing in the picture. And, and she said, Eddie, I just want you to know that is my Jesus. Okay, you know, I'm glad she has a relationship with Jesus, but that is not what Jesus looks like. And, and if, we, if we look really hard for a white glowing Jesus, it's going to be very hard to find that Jesus. Often this means sometimes we're looking for a corpse. Sometimes we're looking for somebody who's dead. Or sometimes we're looking for somebody who just does things the way, changes the world the way we want the world to be changed. It's not a Jesus that's worth seeking. The invitation is not to find the Jesus you want to find, but to listen to the risen Christ calling you your true name. <clears throat> Knowing who you truly are and calling you to meet him. To open the door that he is knocking at currently. Perhaps instead of searching and instead of seeking, we simply can let ourselves, our true selves, listen and be found by this Christ. And so Mary is found, Mary is restored, it was first the creation, then it was Mary, and then next it'll be all of humanity. She reaches out to touch him, and this is sort of a weird part of this whole story. She reaches out to touch him, and, and he says, no, don't, don't touch me. Don't touch me. And he says, the reason why is because I've not ascended to my father. So then he says, look, I want you to go, and I want you to go to your fellow disciples, and I want you to tell them that I'm going to my father and your father, my God and your God. However, this new humanity is going to unfold, and it's going to unfold in lots of ways. We're 2,000 years after it. So however it unfolds, let us sit in awe of this and never forget that it begins, this new humanity begins with this person, a grieving, confused woman 
among the dead who becomes the apostle to the apostles. She becomes the very first preacher of the good news of the resurrection. She who is the only one to deem Jesus' death an important failure. She who is willing to stop and grieve this failure and not go back to business as usual. To her is entrusted the news of the resurrection. If the new humanity has any shape, it will take seriously the voices of those who grieve the unimportant failures, the ones no one else cares about. The new humanity will have no unimportant people in it. <clears throat> Jesus returns to his Father, who is now our Father. He returns to his God, who is now our God. And now we have a sense of what this God is like. This is not a God who looks down on us all in benign and different light, just like the perspective of that painting where everything is sort of bathed in this sunny glow. This is not the kind of God that we meet. The God that Jesus returns to is a God who does turn and turn and turn to all of us. A God who can be found among the tombs, searching, looking around the dead, looking among the dead, trying to find among the dead someone to raise. Searching for the lost. This is not a God who goes home or who asks in some weird way why we are weeping and doesn't understand. This is a God who longs to hear us speak his own name to him. His true name. And that name is Jesus. Father, we thank you for your son who gives us the ability to call you Father. To come to you like this in prayer. and to ask you to help us to hear your voice, hear you speaking our name. May your word grow and bear fruit for the sake of the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you, and may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.